Well, I've heard it said that the greatest evil affecting all of human life and human flourishing in the world today is sin. Shocker, right? But I've also heard it said in the same breath that the second greatest evil is religion. And if you're wondering how that could be so, consider with me Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There they are, the two evils. The sin, the turning away from God, the source of life, and then the religion, by which I really mean far more than what most people would usually classify under the term religion. I mean all of our man-made attempts to fix the problem of our sin, to deal with it on our own, to cope, to manage, to find something to replace what only God can do. In our series in Luke, last week we heard our Lord call a well-known sinner named Levi, tax collector, to follow him. And what wonderful news is it to discover that our sins do not prevent us from being called to follow Jesus. He is, after all, our Savior. He specializes in dealing with our sin. But how distressing it can be to discover that it's our own hard-headed attempts to save ourselves that all too often prevent us from embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Sometimes we find it easier to repent of our sins than we do to repent of our attempts at righteousness. It is a heavier knock to our ego to be told that not even our greatest hits are enough and in fact must be counted as loss. It's one thing for a known sinner whose reputation is nil to leave everything and follow Jesus. But it's a little bit harder for someone who seems respectable, who has a reputation for having it all together, for that person to leave everything and follow Jesus. Looking like you have it all together is overrated, folks. There are those who, sorry, those who have no need. Pastor Dan is not the only pastor who is misreading scripture this morning. I'm going to take his line again because it was perfect earlier. The word of the Lord is perfect. The readers are not. Let me try and gather ahead of steam here. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those words are from Luke 5, verses 31 and 32, and they are, I suspect, some of the most underappreciated words ever spoken. They were designed, as Pastor Dan suggested last week, to confront those who are smugly self-righteous. But tragically, sometimes they land and produce the opposite effect. Among the religious, those words can provoke the worst kind of proud, self-satisfied smugness. I remember back when I was a sinner in need of repentance. I remember when I was as blind and dull as those self-righteous Pharisees. Have you heard about the one about the deacon attending church Sunday after Sunday without fail, sitting right on the edge of his seat, nodding vigorously to every word of the sermon as the pastor preaches, 
And every week without fail, at, at the end of the service, he would make sure to encourage the preacher on the way out by saying, oh boy, you really gave it to him this week, pastor. Every week, same thing. It was always hard to tell with any certainty just who they were, but every week that deacon was quite certain you really gave it to them, pastor. Finally, there came a freakish icy snowstorm the week before March break. Half of the congregation was on vacation. The other half was prevented from reaching the building. The only man in attendance was the faithful deacon who sat enraptured as the pastor presented the word. And the pastor thought to himself, aha, now we've got this guy. What's he going to say at the end of the service today? And at the conclusion of the message, the deacon vigorously pumps the pastor's hand in a parting handshake and says, Wowie, pastor, you really got him today. It's just a shame they weren't here to hear it. And brothers and sisters, my religious friends, I appeal to you in love. Don't be that guy today. I mean, ideally, don't be that guy during any sermon. But really, really don't be that guy when our passage is Luke chapter 5 verses 33 to 39, because this text is about that guy. It's no coincidence that all three gospel writers who record the claim of Jesus, that he calls not the righteous, but sinners, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are all also careful to include this next exchange for us. The purpose of this next paragraph is to make sure we haven't managed in our smugness to quite miss the point of verses 31 to 32 applying to others what must always first be true of ourselves. Even when we give a general acknowledgement of our sins, we can still miss the point of Jesus' call to repentance if we are blinded by our own attempts at religion. So let's read together Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. To get the background for the discussion here, we need to recall the events surrounding the call of Levi from last week. Jesus calls a known sinner, a tax collector, to follow him. Levi gives up everything and follows. Then in verse 29, Levi throws a great feast, and at the feast there are a bunch of Levi's friends, also known to be sinners. Also in attendance at Levi's feast are Jesus and his disciples. And this kind of behavior attracts the attention of certain religious individuals. If you were here last week, you'll recall the complaint the Pharisees bring to Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
Jesus' answer in 31 and 32 is an instant classic. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The answer was supposed to remind these smug, self-righteous religious types that there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all have fallen, all are lost, and therefore all are in need of being called by Jesus. But what happens next is they completely miss the point. They stand there and blink a few times while they attempt to process what Jesus has said to them. And then in a profound misunderstanding of Jesus' words, they go on to say, well, that's great, Jesus, that you're telling all those nasty sinners to repent. We just have one problem. Aren't you supposed to be rehabilitating them? Aren't you supposed to be teaching them to be more righteous? By which, of course, we mean, shouldn't you be instructing them to be more like us? The fact that what Jesus just said was intended to call into question their own claims of righteousness, whoosh, right over their heads. Their religion protects them from even considering it, you see. They can only assume that they are the righteous whom Jesus has no need to call. And if that's the case, they wonder why Jesus isn't doing a better job of making his alleged converts more like them. That's the mentality that hides behind the the passive-aggressive accusation we find in verse 33. All the best righteous people around agree that this is what you're supposed to be doing. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. These groups don't agree on very much, mind you. Any other day of the week, any other place, these two groups would be pointing out the flaws in each other's beliefs. But on this one thing, All the best righteous people agree, Jesus. If you were pro-holiness like us, then surely you would be teaching your disciples to do like we do. But oh no, that's right, I almost forgot. Ooh, awkward. Your disciples eat and drink with sinners. Sorry, Jesus. Didn't mean to embarrass you there. Verse 33 calls attention to the fact that Jesus is breaking rank with certain religious norms. Before we go any further, we really need to identify what it is that Jesus is breaking tradition with. Is Jesus breaking rank with the law of God, as revealed in the Old Testament? Or is Jesus breaking rank with something else here? How we answer that question is going to influence how we interpret what we find in the parables below, verses 36 to 39. Many will read the discussion about what is new and what is old as revealing, say, the nature of Jesus' new ministry of grace over against the previous laws given by God in the Old Testament. And it is true that by coming to fulfill the law and inaugurate the new covenant, the ministry and teaching of Jesus creates an unavoidable amount of tension and transition between what God, God has revealed in the past and what he is now unveiling in the person and work of Christ. However, The New Testament does not generally present Jesus as being incompatible with the Old Testament law. In fact, Jesus himself is more apt to talk about himself as coming to fulfill, not to abolish, the law. When we look closely at verse 33, we can see that the topic being discussed is not really the kind of fasting and praying that is found in the law of God given through Moses. 
Notice that the disciples of John are said to fast often. And this is the same kind of public fasting and prayer that's practiced by the Pharisees. Now, under the Mosaic law, fasting was only prescribed one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. Many people practiced abstaining from food for many different reasons in the Old Testament, but it was usually a voluntary action. It was only really required one day of the year. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees required their disciples to fast twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. On top of that, you would better make sure someone sees you doing it. Go out in the town square, wear your shabbiest clothing, pray really, really loud, wail, look awful, make sure people see your righteousness. You want your righteousness to show when you go out and do this kind of thing. That's the kind of thing being discussed in verse 33. This isn't God's law. This is a human invention. It's the kind of thing Jesus was referring to in Matthew 15 when he quotes Isaiah 29 to say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So let's quickly compare some of the differences between what true fasting in the Old Testament was supposed to accomplish and what this sanctimonious, legalistic kind of fasting looked like instead. Just in case there's anyone here who's never heard the word used in this way before, to be clear, the, the word fasting is just choosing not to eat for a little while for religious reasons. True fasting should ideally accomplish three things. One, fasting should make you aware of your human limitations, especially your sin, which leads to death. Without food, the body perishes. Without grace from God, life ceases to exist. True fasting is a sign of humility and penitence before God. Number two, fasting should tear down social barriers by teaching those who have much to sympathize with those who have little. It should motivate acts of mercy because we remember God's mercy in providing all that we have. And then we, in turn, look like that as we give mercy to others. Three, fasting should be an expression of disappointment with the present sinful state of our world. And also an expression of hope that God would graciously visit his people and restore their condition. Something about fasting should acknowledge that things are not the way they should be, but things will be the way they should be when God gets here. So to sum up very briefly, proper fasting would involve an awareness and confession of sin. It would promote acts of mercy towards others, and it would express a hope for God to show up and restore what is broken. For reasons we'll return to in a little bit, I feel we can safely say that the kind of legalistic fasting practiced by the Pharisees was actually accomplishing none of these things. Instead, what the religious crowd was using fasting for was quite different. Instead of using it to increase their awareness of sin, they were practicing fasting in order to make themselves appear righteous in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. Instead of using it to promote acts of mercy towards others, they were using it to draw boundary lines that would put themselves in the holy group and put other people outside the boundaries. And now that we've unpacked some of the details of, to show how they were asking the wrong question in verse 33, we can broaden this out into an idea that's 
easy to apply generally. We can still miss the point today by asking the wrong questions. And usually that looks something like this. Instead of looking at a particular situation and asking, how can I love God and love and serve my neighbor? Sometimes we end up asking or operating along some lines that go, how do I make myself right in the eyes of God? How do I make myself appear righteous in the eyes of my neighbor? Now, most of the people who are guilty of operating along that second line spend a great deal of time and effort convincing themselves and others that they're not doing it, that they're actually asking the first question. So how can you tell which one you're actually doing? Well, you can usually tell by the results. Let's use the Pharisees in verse 33 as an example. If they were fasting for the right reasons, that should have helped them come to an awareness of their own limitations, their own sin, their own inability to save themselves. They should have been the first to think of their own need of salvation upon hearing Jesus' pronouncement, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If they were really interested in God and neighbor, their fasting would recall to them God's mercy and motivate them to show mercy towards others. Instead, they spend their efforts getting all worked up into controversy when Jesus displays compassion towards outsiders. And finally, if they were fasting for the right reasons, they would have had their hopes fixed on the coming arrival of God's salvation. In other words, we know they weren't observing God's law out of faith because if they were, they would have recognized Jesus when they saw him as the fulfillment of that Old Testament law. Jesus addresses this very issue with his words in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is what we mean in point two of your outlines, where it says, missing the point by failing to identify Jesus as the answer. And this is what Jesus' response in verses 34 and 35 really centers around, the importance of recognizing who Jesus is. Let's consider an example of what this looks like when it's actually done correctly, because Luke has already provided us with one. If you remember the Christmas narratives about the birth of Jesus, remember the character of Anna, from the, from the Christmas story of when the baby Jesus was being brought to the temple to be dedicated. Old, widowed Anna, who did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Well, the difference between Anna and the Pharisees, other than the fact that that, that, that old lady outfasted and outprayed and outworshipped circles around the Pharisees, the difference is that Anna's fasting expressed a deep and abiding hope for the arrival of God's intervention. And when she beheld Jesus, she broke forth in praise, giving thanks to God for what he had done. For Anna, fasting was an act of mourning for the present and hope for the future. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that hope. For the Pharisees, fasting wasn't really about mourning today or about hope for tomorrow. It was about self-satisfaction and self-righteousness. When Jesus arrived, he was not the fulfillment of what they were hoping for. He was a threat to their present strategy. Jesus had to spell it out for them. If you had any idea who I really am, 
you would know that you're fasting during feast time right now? Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, interesting side note here, the metaphor of the bridegroom appears often in the Old Testament, but it's never used as a picture of the coming Messiah. But often, so often, in fact, that these so-called scripture experts should, should really not miss this, often God himself is described in the language of the husband, Israel's husband, with the nation as his wife. Jesus is saying to anyone with ears to hear that his earthly ministry is nothing less than a personal visit from God himself. If they were truly fasting and praying and waiting to behold the promised arrival of God, visiting his people and restoring their fortunes, well, Jesus says the time is right now. This is the visit. You say your fasting and your prayers and your church attendance and your quiet times and all your other acts of devotion are for what? For the purpose of drawing near to God? Well, in Jesus, God has drawn near to you. Don't miss it. Here's what Jesus is saying to all of us who struggle with putting down our religious methods of dealing with our sin, who try so hard to bring ourselves near to God through our own efforts. God's nearness is accomplished not by our efforts, but by the grace that has arrived in Jesus. Sin is atoned for not by our greatest hits, but by Jesus' humble sacrifice. We even have a hint of that sacrifice before us in verse 35. The days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus already knows he has come to offer his life as a sacrifice to atone for sin. That's why he can invite sinners to follow him. But he also needs to teach us to repent not only of our sin, but also of our own religious attempts to deal with our sin. If you knew who I was, he's telling these disciples, you wouldn't be attempting through your own efforts to get to God. You would realize that I am right here. Notice that Jesus isn't actually opposed to fasting. He says there's, there's going to be a time for fasting later. The same goes for many other useful religious practices. Tithing and prayer and worship, selfless love and humble service, devotions, scripture memory, it's all good stuff. It's all good, but what Jesus intends to break us of is the delusion that these things could ever gain us access to God. These things have a place in a godly life because we know God through faith in Christ. And because we know God, we want to please him. To worship him with all that we are, to serve others in his name, to be sanctified and set apart, to experience the life of Christ and the character of Christ growing within us as we live to please the Father. There's a classic piece of well-meaning billboard Christianity that has probably done more unintentional harm than it's done good. I'm sure you've seen this one. If you're not close to God, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? What's the usual response to that billboard? Guilt? Doubt? Perhaps a little bit of godly conviction, but mostly one of two things. We either despair of our inability to restore our own closeness with God, 
or we burn ourselves out through renewed efforts to try to accomplish what we cannot do. Allow me to propose an alternative question. What if the billboard said, if God is closer to you than he used to be, which one of you drew near? If you were to realize that God is closer now to you than he was before, who closed the gap? Who drew near? Our own attempts to draw ourselves up to heaven are always doomed to fail. They can prevent us from seeing Jesus as the way and the truth and the life that, the God, that God the Father has provided for us. But once you're resting in the work of Christ as your Savior, there is no end to the good things that you can do in his service. But not one of those good things earns your place at the table. And thank goodness for that. That's the gospel. And in order to embrace it, our religious inclinations to dig our own wells and to manage our own sin need to be abandoned. And that's what the parables in verses 36 to 39 are there to help us with. And as we turn to these final parables, I want to remind us about something we touched just a little on earlier. When Jesus refers to the the new and the old in these verses, he's not discussing the difference between the Old Testament law and the New Testament covenant. The old here is not referring to the law of God in the scriptures. Rather, the old Jesus is referring to here is the old attempts made by each one of us to deal with sin and to achieve a righteousness of our own. This is every form of man-made religion. This is all of our attempts at sowing fig leaves to hide our nakedness. Verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. In your outlines, this is missing the point by attempting to preserve our self-made righteousness instead of embracing the righteousness of Christ. The Bible often uses the metaphor of clothing to picture righteousness. Come to think of it, that probably goes all the way back to sowing fig leaves together in the garden. Through the prophet Isaiah, God once gave a striking and unforgettable description of what our own attempts at righteousness look like from his holy perspective. All our righteousness are like filthy rags. And with that as a background, it makes what's already a pretty ridiculous situation described by Jesus in verse 36, makes it even more strange and tragic that what we're working with is dirty rags. Imagine someone taking a brand new piece of clothing and cutting a great big, actually ripping is the text, but ripping a great big piece of fabric, ruining the new clothes, only to take that piece and sew it on to, the, to an old piece of clothing. Not only is it a waste of the new garment, but according to Jesus, the plan isn't even going to work. The new fabric won't match the old. Matthew and Mark preserve an additional detail of Jesus' words in this teaching. Not only will the new fabric fail to match the old, but the new fabric is going to shrink. And when that happens, there's going to be a tear, and the old garment is going to end up in worse shape than it was before. As ridiculous as this is, it's exactly what many people attempt to do with Jesus. We deceive ourselves into thinking that our filthy rags are in fact an almost adequate solution for our sinful nakedness before God. We hear about Jesus and we think, yes, just what I needed. 
Because to be honest, Jesus, I was doing pretty good on my own with this whole righteousness thing. Like, I don't know, I don't know if I, how calibrated I am, but I'd say about 98% before I met you. I was really doing well, but all I need is a little patch of Jesus to just sew it on my old filthy rags, and then I'll pretty much be done. Thanks for the assist, Jesus. But Jesus tells us that is not how things work. His salvation comes as a complete garment, spotless and white. And in order to receive it, we must repent of our own sin. We must also remove our own attempts at earning God's approval. And approach in humility, fully aware of our total need for his gracious salvation, which can only be received through faith. Why is it so hard to do this? The answer is as simple as it is uncomfortable. Because for the time being, our filthy rags are the only thing we've got to cover up our failures. Author Larry Crabb puts it this way. Fallen man has taken command of his own life, determined above all else to prove that he's adequate for the job. And like the teen who thinks he is rich until he starts paying for his own car insurance, we remain confident of our own ability to manage life until we are forced to face the reality of our own soul. To realistically face what is true within us puts us in touch with a level of helplessness we don't care to experience. I would say that given a choice between avoiding the feeling of true helplessness or receiving the help we really need, too many of us choose too often to avoid facing the truth. But Jesus makes it clear that won't work. You can't take a piece of his righteousness and patch up your own. The truth about our filthy rags is that they're going to contribute precisely nothing to our salvation. In order to receive eternal life from Jesus Christ, each one of us must confess our total need for his help. The parable of the wineskins in verses 37 and 38 is very similar. So much so that instead of repeating what I've said about the clothing, I'm just going to make one small additional application. One more way that we can miss the point is by attempting to receive the new life Jesus offers without a willingness to change. As wineskins aged, they became inflexible and brittle. I think old leather. They could still hold liquid, but you couldn't put fresh wine into them because the new wine was still fermenting and the pressure produced inside the container would cause a brittle old container to burst. So a new wineskin, by contrast, still had some elasticity in it. It was able to stretch and accommodate the activity and the life within. Just as some might attempt to use a little bit of Jesus in order to patch up their own righteousness, others will want to receive the new life Jesus offers only without a willingness to make any changes. But this just repeats the same mistake about our lives apart from Jesus. Who we are in our sin is not essentially compatible with the holy life that Jesus offers. The truth is our old life must go. Our sinful nature must be crucified. Following Jesus requires picking up our cross and being willing to exchange our old life for the new one he offers. Do we really think that relinquishing our own control over our lives and handing lordship over to Jesus is going to result in something that looks pretty much like what we were doing before? 
That we're going to spend our time and money the same way? That we're going to love others the same way? That we're going to approach our ideas about loving and serving God the Father in the same way? Who honestly comes to Jesus in order to stay the way they were before? James Edwards writes, The question is not whether disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they, for, they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration. Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. Finally, we come to this short saying in verse 39. And no one after receiving, no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, eh, the old is good. This verse is Luke's unique contribution. It is not included in Matthew or Mark's versions. And it offers a powerful summary of everything that we've covered so far. You can actually miss the point by denying your greatest desire. Often people read verse 39 and they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They think maybe the point is that the old Jewish system is good and the new wine is good. They just don't mix well together. But as we've already seen, it is not the proper observance of God's good law that's being discussed here. It is not Jesus who pronounces the old wine in his parable as good enough. It is the guy who drinks the wine in the parable who thinks the wine is good. Jesus concludes his teaching here with a sad thought. Even though the new wine is the very life he came to bring, even though the new wine is the only source of eternal life, of knowing the Father, of rescue from damnation and eternity in paradise, even though the new wine is the very thing we were created for, to know and trust and love and please God himself, many will decide that they don't want or need what Jesus offers because they have convinced themselves that they pretty much have things under control on their own. We miss what Jesus has for us as long as we can convince ourselves that what we've got is working. And for lots of people, what they've got is working just well enough to fool most of the people around them most of the time. As I said earlier, the appearance of having it all together, massively overrated. Larry Crabb, in an insightful comment, writes, Jesus gives nothing to the person who wants what he does not provide. Jesus gives nothing to the person who wants what he does not provide. Isn't that tragic? It's tragic in the same way Jesus' final words here are. No one after drinking the old desires the new. I think many people express some genuine interest in Jesus. They even profess to begin following him for a little while, only to eventually reach the point where in order to go any further, it's going to cost too much. Your filthy rags are not allowed beyond this point. You cannot enter the wedding feast wearing them. You must remove them and accept the clothing Jesus provides for you instead. 
You've been interested in Jesus for a while now, but you haven't surrendered control of your life over to him just yet. He keeps making that same pesky request. Repent. Repent of your sin. Repent even of your religion. Step off the throne. The old wineskin is showing stretch marks. There are some seams ready to burst. The pain is getting real now. And the only way to go be going forward is to let go of the old life and allow Jesus to change you from the inside out. But as long as we think that what we've got is going to work, well, there is no reason to let go of the old. And so the only cure for our religious resistance to the gospel is for Jesus to ruthlessly severely yet lovingly expose to us just how lost we are apart from him. Sometimes I wonder if we don't approach God with, with prayer requests for certain things. And on the surface, they seem like good things, fine things. But what these prayer requests mask is really a secret desire, just let me hold on to my filthy rags. Isn't it okay, God, if I just keep the old wineskin? We're secretly asking for things that will, in the end, blunt our hunger for God. Something that will satisfy us, but it is less than really knowing Him. And at times like that, it is God's severest and dearest and most necessary mercy that lies behind His denial of our requests. Because he loves us, the garment stretches a little more and the old clothing tears a little bit more and the wineskin begins to leak and finally bursts. Because he loves us, we are brought to the end of ourselves and our great need is exposed and then and only then we have a chance to enter into the riches of his grace. If your religious life is an effort to bring God closer to you, an effort to maintain control and to earn your way into heaven, then that's old wine. And the only use you'll ever have for Jesus is to patch up your righteousness. But if your religion is instead a response of faith to the good news that in Jesus Christ, God has drawn near to sinners and provided a way for them to be saved, then you have within you new life, bubbling up and overflowing in love of God and neighbor. If you are going to end up nearer to God than when you started, it will be because you have realized God has graciously drawn near to you in Christ. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pour out our thanks to you because of who you are and because of the ways you have chosen to act and to reveal yourself to us through Jesus. And we give you praise for giving us what we truly need, a patient Savior who points out our flaws who provides salvation from sin and even rescue from our own attempts at righteousness. Thank you for giving us what we need and not always 
what we ask for. Father, we pray this morning for those who are here and who are your children, who know you through genuine faith in Jesus Christ, who desire to walk closer to you, and it is possible for us to fall back into the trap of attempting to finish in the flesh what can only be accomplished through faith, what can only be done in the power of your Spirit. When that happens, when we start to treasure too much our strategies of coping, our techniques of looking like we've got it all together, when we are keeping at arm's length the confession of our desperate neediness, of our acknowledgement that we do not have all the answers, that things do hurt, that we are hoping for something better when we will one day be in your presence. Father, I pray for your children here today that you would, you would help your sons and daughters to, to confess to you the things that keep you at arm's distance. To give those things over and to accept with freshness the mercy and the grace and the life that comes to us through Jesus, your Son. We pray for those who are here this morning who perhaps have never reached a point of surrender and faith in Jesus. Maybe there are some here this morning who have often heard that Jesus calls sinners to repentance, but have never realized that they haven't admitted that that's them yet. Maybe there are people who've been following Jesus from a distance and who have not yet actually confessed that he is their Lord, he is their Savior, that he belongs on the throne of their life. And if that is the case, then, Father, I pray that today you would graciously give them the gift of eternal life, that they would see Jesus as he truly is, your provision for our sin, that Jesus accomplishes what our attempts at righteousness cannot, that he gives eternal life, that he gives forgiveness. We pray that they would know him as Savior and Lord today. And we pray for your wisdom as we live this week and as we desire to look more like Jesus, to be transformed into the image of your Son, that your Spirit would produce in us the fruit of a life that is following Jesus, that the things that we do would no longer be attempts to, to earn, your, earn your pleasure, but that because Jesus lives a life that perfectly pleases you, that's what we would go out and live. That by your spirit, when we, when we interact with others, when we love others, when we show your mercy to others, we would be doing this because of the great mercy and love you have already bestowed upon us. And as a result, you would receive glory. And as a result, many would come to see and know Jesus as he is. It is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a pure and unfading love. Go in peace. You're dismissed.